Good morning. Good morning. I, um, I'm looking forward to preaching today. I always am, I guess. Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing out this, this book with you all. And partly because, I don't know, does anybody like a good story? Who reads a lot? Does anybody read a lot anymore? I love to read. I love to read. Um, one of the things I noticed, uh, my, my older son, he reads a lot, and he reads books that are in a series. And one of the things that series books have uh, in common, at least these days, I don't know if they've always been like this, but at least these days, when you read a book in a series, you'll get to the end of the chapter, and since there's another book to follow, there won't, there, there won't be necessarily an epilogue. You know, like an epilogue is like you've, all the action's been solved, everything's been going on, and you kind of want to know just a little bit more like about, about the characters that you've grown to love in whatever story you're reading. So you want to know what, what happens next, right? That's the epilogue. Um, a lot of times you don't have that because instead you have a sneak preview of the next book. They'll give you a chapter of the next book. I find this annoying and I never read it because I'm like, I'm just going to wait till I can actually keep going because they're going to leave me with a cliffhanger, they're going to get me all interested, and then they're not going to tell me. So um, what I thought was kind of interesting about this last section, closing out, um, after we've had the six, uh, what's called disputations, or some people call them oracle or burden, uh, these six times when the Lord has spoken through the prophet. And he says a number of things, not not always the same number of things. Some of them are quite long and some of them are much shorter. Um, But after we finish this up, after we've we've looked at these six disputations, these six um, revelations of God through the prophet Malachi, we see an epilogue. We see just a few verses that tell us, okay, what happened next? Surely there were people who listened to God. What happened with them? And then we have a sneak preview. We have some stuff that's coming. And we have a postscript, which is interesting. Not usually found it, don't, you don't usually find it in a story, right? Uh, but you find it here. And so this is the way, this is how this uh, chapter is, or this, it's not a chapter, right? It's, it actually expands more than a chapter. But this is how the, we're going to close up this last section. Um, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to remind you of where we are in the book and what we've learned so far, for those of you who haven't been with us in this series. And then we're going to look and see what the text has. And one of the, one of the joys that I think that we have, that Jay and I have, and that anybody else who works through a book from the beginning to the end, this joy that we have is that we don't decide beforehand what to preach. God decides what we're going to preach based on what we finished last week and what's coming. And if we ever like skip a bunch of verses, you'll know it. And you'll go, wait a minute. Hey, Jay, hey, Sam, how come you didn't deal with verses 16 through 18? Or how come you didn't deal with those verses? We don't have the luxury of skipping anything. Um, so, uh, it's one of the joys that I have, and I'm very happy to be able to finish up this message today. But let's go to the Lord like we do when we listen to His Word. Because, you know, as much as you might hear somebody speak or a teacher at school or you might read a book, and sometimes you're just not paying attention. Let's pay attention. And let's ask the Lord to help us to pay attention so that we can learn from His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for your word. Thank you that you have given it to us, that you gave it to the prophets over the years. Thank you that you preserved it. Uh, God, in your providence, you have made sure that we still have your word. Um, Parts of your word that have been written down for thousands of years, and we still have it. 
the most recent parts of your word have been written down for 2,000 years, and we still have it as you revealed it. It's still authoritative over our lives and the lives of every single person on earth. And just like it's always been, humanity counts on you to reveal your word to us. Because our minds and our hearts, our ears, our lives are corrupt because of sin. And unless you speak, not only through your word, your objective word that doesn't change, that you've always made sure was preserved for us, but unless you speak to us by your Holy Spirit, unless you regenerate us, we can't hear accurately even then. So God, speak to us. You know my own heart in this. You know that I can't stand in front of a group of people and tell them your word in, in some kind of a, a separate and distinct way, like I, like I know more than them, like, like I'm above sin or I'm above being misled can't speak out of my own head or I'll speak falsely. Lord, I need to hear your word just as much as anybody else. Speak to us and help us to hear and help us to listen and help us to obey so that we can bring you glory. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we lost the slides for a second. Oh, there we are. All right, so uh, these are the six disputes. Talked about the chiastic structure. I won't go in that today. Uh, if you don't know what that is, we can talk after. Um, but after these six disputes, uh, we have a final section. Um, and I was really, was really happy the way that this worked out so that I could uh, preach this message today. Um, but what have we heard before? Well, here's the essential. God is saying through the prophet Malachi to the people of Israel, after the return, the temple's been built, and he says, look, all of you have broken the terms of my covenant, the covenant that I made with your fathers, I, I made with your fathers, and I, I gave you a relationship with me through this covenant. But you've broken the terms of the covenant. Your priests are unfit to offer sacrifices before me. I have warned you, but even now, you don't believe my word. None of you even wants to repent. And that's the tone, right? Each one of these disputations, we don't have this, verse 16, does it come on the heels of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a warning from God, right? And then the people are like, oh, now we get it. Malachi doesn't even tell us that. He goes directly from the final sixth disputation, which if you'll look back a couple of verses, you'll see the people didn't listen. They still weren't listening. None of you even wants to repent, the Lord says. This is the things that Malachi brings up. You don't believe my love, you doubt it. You don't love me back, you show contempt for me, you despise my name. You offer substandard sacrifices and you know they're bad. You profane my name, you haven't resolved to honor my name, you turn my people away instead of teaching them how to follow. <clears throat> Instead of helping them walk along the path of obedience, you cause them to stumble. You selectively obey the law. You're unfaithful to your wives and you're unfaithful to each other. You weary me with your complaining. You're robbing me instead of giving me the gifts that my law so clearly says you should give. And you've spoken arrogantly against me. 
That's how he closed out the final disputation. You've spoken arrogantly against me. They say, what good is it to repent? What good is it going about mourning before the Lord? What good is it to serve him? What do we get out of it? That's how he closes it out. So, this epilogue is an epilogue of grace. Nobody responded the right way when God delivered his word through the prophet. Nobody responded. We understand in the greater picture of Scripture that nobody can respond rightly to God's word unless he regenerates them. They're all dead in their sins. We were all dead in our sins. Some of you today may still be dead in your sins. You cannot respond to the word of God in and of yourself. It cannot happen. So if there's going to be any return, it's of grace. The unmerited favor of God to people who don't deserve it. We don't deserve the ordinary favor that God shows to all humanity, much less his saving grace through Jesus Christ. We don't deserve it, and yet he gives it. Malachi tells of the repentant, this group of those who heard the word of the Lord and feared him and honored him, only after he showed that there was no hope for Israel whatsoever outside of a new covenant, because they broke the old covenant. They were unfaithful to the old covenant. And even though they had the covenant, they had it, they had the agreement. Under the agreement, they were supposed to have priests who were rightly submitted to God and offering good sacrifices. Well, they're offering bad sacrifices, and their priests don't even worship and fear God. The priests are accepting those bad sacrifices, not wanting to eat them, finding them disgusting, and yet offering them anyway because they showed so much contempt. So little honor for the name of God. You need a new covenant. And it wasn't until after he revealed this and after he showed that the people were still rejecting him that he tells us of this remnant. This remnant that existed by the grace of God. We read in verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. So what do we see in these few verses about this remnant? What I find it interesting is that their attitude had completely changed toward God. Two things that God singled out previously in the text in Malachi 1 through 3, you know, 14 or 15. He said, you don't fear me. You don't fear my name. What did Solomon say in the Proverbs? The beginning of knowledge, chapter 1, the beginning of wisdom, chapter 9 or 10, can't remember, is the fear of the Lord. Without a right fear of the Lord, there's no knowing God, and there's no wisdom to act accordingly. They had a right fear of the Lord all of a sudden. Did they give this to themselves? They didn't have it before verse 16. No, it was of the grace of God. All of a sudden, they had a right fear of the Lord, and they decided to honor him. Remember in chapter 2, in the beginning, he said to the priests, I will curse your blessings. 
if you don't resolve to honor my name. And I have cursed your blessings because you haven't resolved to honor my name. I, one of the guys I listened to before we started this series, uh, he, he gave me so much joy in the way he put this and also a, lo- a lot of fear. He said, of this particular verse, a way you could put that in everyday speech is, God is saying to the people, you don't take me seriously. The whole relationship that you've had with me, the history that you've seen me interact with your people, all the promises, all the revelations, all the miracles that you've seen recorded, and you don't take me seriously. I said when we went through that passage, that's one of the struggles that we have as a parent, right? When we try to tell our kids something and they don't take us seriously. We know because we know, we've, we've experienced the failure to put into practice whatever we're trying to teach our kids in those moments. And if we can be exasperated at that, imagine what the Lord is saying right now to people who don't take Him seriously. The God who speaks and creation happens. Things that don't exist come into existence because of the Word of God, and His people, who He's revealed Himself to, don't take Him seriously. Let me tell you something. Sometimes that's our problem, too. We might read through a verse too quickly, or we might have to go to the bathroom suddenly when there's preaching going on, because we don't want to take the Lord seriously at His Word. We can see just how dangerous that was in chapter 2, but all of a sudden, you have this remnant who fear the Lord properly, and they've resolved in their hearts to honor Him. Secondly, I want you to see how they responded to each other. Now, it's just a little simple phrase, they talked to each other. I'll go back a slide there. Those who fear the Lord talked with each other. All of a sudden, there was fellowship between those who took the Lord seriously. They heard the word preached, they were cut to the heart, and they responded. And they talked to each other. All of a sudden, they had a reason to have fellowship. They had a reason to talk with each other because the Lord had opened up their hearts so that they could fear Him and honor Him properly. He gave them grace to hear. That's why I I try to remember to pray all the time. Give me eyes to see. Give me ears to hear. Give Give me a repentant heart toward you, Lord. Help me to hear you when you speak. And that's why I urge all of you to do that as well. But it's not just their response that gives me such joy. It's the Lord's response, right? The Lord listened and he heard. Isaiah 59, 2 says that the Lord is not listening to those who are unrepentant in their sin. It's not that he can't hear, right? God can hear anything that anybody says or thinks. Of course he can hear. But sin has made a separation, Isaiah tells the people at that time, between you and your God so that you pray and he doesn't listen. He's not hearing you. It's not that he can't, he's choosing not to. Can you imagine what a dreadful state that is? That you cry out to the Lord, you cry out for help, you cry out to God, and he's willfully not listening to you. But let me tell you something. If you haven't repented and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I don't care what you say, God is not listening. It's not that he's not able. He chooses not to because you are still rebellious and you're still refusing to repent. In this case, 
God gave them the ability, and they had a repentant attitude toward him. They feared him. They honored him. They wanted to honor him more. They talked to each other, perhaps about how to honor him more and serve him correctly. But in any case, he listened and he heard. What's more, he says, a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence. Well, what, is, what does this mean, right? Um, you might, your attention might be drawn back to the story of Esther. Um, I would encourage you to go back to the story of Esther uh, and, and look in Esther chapter 2 or 3 where Mordecai, Esther's uncle, he hears about a plot to kill the king Ahasuerus. And he makes that plot known to Esther who then gets it to the king and so the king can act appropriately and keep these men from killing him. And he has it written down in a book of records or a book of history in his presence because he wants to honor this person and, and, and remember this person who has served him. And so that's what he does there. And then later in the story, I think chapter 6, the king can't sleep and he, he has his servants read that scroll of remembrance or that book of history, and he hears what Mordecai did. And he acts in this huge, it's really a great story. I just want you to look back at, and read the book of Esther. But it's this awesome thing where God uses Mordecai's worst enemy and puts him in a place where he has to lead Mordecai around the city, in effect praising him for what he did for King Ahasuerus. That's the picture we have here that a scroll of remembrance was written in the presence of the Lord for those who repented, who feared him, who honored him, and acted appropriately. That's the kind of promise. Now, I want to bring this to our attention. I'm not going to go back to the list now, but all the negative things that you'll read in this book, that the people, the negative attitudes that the people had toward the Lord, more than half the time, instead of just saying me or the Lord, it would say his name. They refused to honor his name. They despised his name. What's so different about saying the name of the Lord versus just saying God? Let me tell you, there's a big difference. Lots of people will say, I fear God, and they're telling the truth in their own mind. But the God that they fear is not the Lord. They don't know him according to his word. They can't possibly have a right fear of God if they don't know God. So there's all kinds of people with all kinds of religion. There's even people within the realm of Christianity who would define their God by some of this word. But because they don't know him through Jesus Christ, they don't know him completely according to his word. Now, I'm not talking about being able to write all the characteristics and define them properly. I'm talking about they don't have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. So they don't have access to the true God. They have a God of their own imagination that they worship. They say things like, well, the God I worship wouldn't do that. Or the God I worship wouldn't send people to hell. Or the God that I worship, he would accept anybody who comes with a sincere attitude. They don't know the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible has prescribed a way to come to him, and that way is Jesus. When we talk about the name of the Lord, I want you to think about this. The name of the Lord means all that he is. It is whole, his whole and complete identity, which was revealed through the prophets in part over the years and was fully and finally made manifest, made perfectly clear in Jesus Christ, in his person, in his work, in his words, and in this whole revelation from Genesis to Revelation. They had honored his name. 
this remnant that God brought about, they knew him. They listened to his word, they repented, and they trusted in his, in his word, and they resolved to honor his name. On that final day, he says in the end of this, this last part of, of verse 18, you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. This is the first part of the sneak preview, right? It's introduction into the sneak preview. You're going to again see the distinction. Why the distinction and why again? One of, the, one of the complaints I think that we see, one of the overriding themes of the complaint in Malachi that we see is that the people didn't feel there was much distinction between them as Israel and the people around them. They didn't feel like they were being brought up and picked up and lifted up and honored and shown any kind of distinction from between them and the people around. So they said things like, well, what good does it do to serve God? Look at what we have. Look at our measly crops. Look at our measly return. Look at our, our puny wall and our small temple. Look at all this little stuff. What do we have that nobody else has? But he says, you will again see the distinction. Why does he say again? Because time and time again, God had shown pictures of the difference between the righteous and the wicked. Right? We have the righteous who were in in the ark and the wicked who drowned and died. We have the righteous who were brought between the waters. We have the wicked, Pharaoh's army, who died when he brought the water crashing down. We had the righteous who were among the children of Israel who passed through the the, the Red Sea. And we had those wicked who died in the desert because they did not believe God. In, 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 in the Babylonian captivity, we have kind of a, a difference, right? Jeremiah helps us to see this. The righteous, or at least some of them, were taken into captivity in Babylon. The wicked remained and ended up down in Egypt, other than Jeremiah, it seems, and died up out of the land because they refused to listen. God made distinctions between the righteous and the wicked all the time. And even now, we see the wrath of God being revealed from heaven in all sorts of judgments. But he says he'll again make a distinction. And he points to what, is, what he means particularly. He says, on that final day of the Lord, there will again be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Well, let's, let's look at that judgment. Let's look at our sneak preview of judgment that we get in the book of Malachi. What does judgment look like? Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. The day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. The first thing he says is surely, or your translation may say certainly. Because I am sure that in this day, those who refuse to listen to the word of the Lord will be just like the ones that Peter talks about when he says, you know, on that day, there's going to be scoffers who come. And they're going to say, where, where is this coming that you keep promising? Things have been going on from creation until now, just like they always do. Where's this coming you're talking about? There are probably people like that today who say, you say Jesus is coming back. 2,000 years he hasn't come back. What makes you say, what makes you so certain he's going to come? He said he would. He says it here. Surely the day is coming. Certainly it's coming. And it'll burn like a furnace. In chapter 3, we saw another kind of fire, didn't we? We saw the refining fire of Jesus Christ. 
the purifying fire of the one who would come to the light of Christ and be exposed by the light of Christ and say, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And that light would expose their goodness, right? The goodness of the faith that God had given to them so they could trust in Christ and believe and be saved, and then he would purify them. This is not a purifying fire. I suppose in a sense you could call it purifying because it's going to destroy the wicked. It's going to consume them because our God is a consuming fire. He says they're like stubble. They're dried and they're ready for that match to flick. They're ready for that fire to come and consume them. And make no mistake, if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, that's you. If your faith is not in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior... That fire is coming to consume you. Not a root or a branch will be left. What does this mean? Periodically in the Old Testament, after a prophecy of doom was coming on the people of Israel, he would talk about a branch or a root or a remnant. And it meant that there was hope later. Maybe not for the individuals, but for their offspring. This is a fire that's going to leave no offspring. This is a destruction that's going to leave no opportunity afterwards for change. That's it. This fire of destruction offers no chance of repentance to those who come after. There are none after. A complete destruction. Because even though God has periodically through the Bible prophesied and warned the people of judgment to come, this is the final judgment. This is the end, and not a root, not a branch will be left. There's no opportunity later. There's no generations later. It's the end. The day of the Lord, the final day of judgment, is certainly coming, and it will mean final destruction for all those who refuse to repent. Here's the distinction. Verse 2, But for you who revere my name, Again, my name, all of that I have revealed to you about myself here, all of my name. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and, and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will, they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. There is a distinction the righteous will live, the wicked will be destroyed. He says they'll frolic like well-fed calves. I don't, I, I look at some of these descriptions, these poetic descriptions of what it's going to be like in heaven, and I can't imagine. Um, I have various issues when I, when I jog. Sometimes I can't keep going because I've got this foot hurting or that hip or this knee or whatever, and I'm only 45. And I know some of you are laughing, and you're like, oh, I became friends with that pain a long time ago. But you understand that the picture he's painting, can you imagine Jackie frolicking like a well-fed calf, not getting pulled back by your tank? I think it'd be awesome. The joy that we're going to have, the renewal, the healing. What's the son of righteousness? A lot of people think a lot of different things about this, and I'll confess I looked at a lot of commentators on this to see what other people think. Um, and, and one of them that I read that I just have to share with you, I just can't agree with it. He talked about these pagan symbols of a, 
of a, you know, some Persian pagan symbol of the sun being, you know, we know that pagan societies have always thought the sun was something, right? We know that. We, we realize that. And if somebody used a pagan symbol to show us the superiority of Christ, that'd be okay. We'd, we wouldn't have a problem with that. But my question is, what does Malachi mean about the son of righteousness? He doesn't mean pagan symbols. Let's think in terms of creation, right? What is the sun? We know from a scientific perspective, but people have known for thousands of years that the sun means light and life and warmth and energy. We know better now how much that means life and light and warmth and energy and growth. But he doesn't say the sun. He says the sun of righteousness. So he's talking about something spiritual, the source of righteousness maybe the center of righteousness, the reality, the inner reality, the truth of righteousness with healing in its rays, with life and energy and warmth and heat. So what does he mean by this? Well, the Lord is often compared to the sun. So let's look at a couple of those passages. Psalm 84, 11, the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Here we see the Lord compared to a son, or the son, rather, the source, the one who brings light, the one who brings life, warmth, all good things. Isaiah 9, 2. You might be familiar with this passage or maybe more familiar with 9, 6. A son is born to us, a son is given, or a child is born to us, a son is given. But here, and in the introduction, he says, nevertheless, There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he, the Lord, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, because the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The light of truth, the light of Christ. He goes on to describe the child that would be born, the son that would be given. And we know he's talking about Jesus Christ. Habakkuk or Habakkuk, however you were taught to say it. Again, talking about the Lord, his splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Talking about the Lord as the sun in his tremendous power. Matthew 17, after six days, this is the Mount of Transfiguration passage. If you're wondering, you can look it up later. It's Matthew chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, led them on a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Jesus is depicted as shining like the sun, the sun of righteousness. The end of uh, John's uh, or Zechariah's remarks, the father of John the Baptist from Luke chapter 1. He says, and you, my child, talking to John the Baptist, you'll be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. I got to imagine that Zechariah is thinking and the Holy Spirit is bringing out this same passage from Malachi as he did before, or I'm sorry, as he will later in the end of chapter four. 
son of righteousness will rise. Jesus Christ. You could go on and on and on. You could look through John as over again, Jesus, over and over again, Jesus is shown to be and talked about as the light of the world that gives light and life to the men. The son of righteousness is Jesus Christ. That's, he's the reason for the grace of God on that remnant who, like their brothers and sisters, went through six oracles of the Lord and rejected. And somehow or another, he woke dead hearts to life. He worked within them through the Holy Spirit. He gave them light and life and the ability to repent. And when they did, they feared the Lord as they should. They were, they were uh, honoring his name as they should. And they turned their hearts to obedience. The ultimate reward of the righteous is laid up for them in heaven, in the eternal kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. And they, the righteous, will bear witness to the final destruction of the wicked. You understand that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you're going to be with that little remnant from the book of Malachi. And you're going to be with all the little remnants before and in between them and Christ and all the remnant who is going to come after you, who's going to receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And you're all going to be on that day witnessing the final destruction of the wicked together and praising Jesus who gave you the victory. The final section, the postscript, part of this is repent and obey. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. You'll be able to read about some of this. You'll see some of this in, in, the, uh, in the words of Gabriel to Zechariah um, in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And he'll say, the one who comes in the spirit of the power of Elijah, that's going to be your son. Now, just a quick word about Elijah here. People have all sorts of difference of opinion about this Elijah that's to come. Um, the Jews, uh, for, for many, many years, believe that we're talking about Elijah the Tishbite, and we're talking about one coming, that Elijah would come, and he would introduce the Messiah, and then the Messiah would reign. But they also believe that the Messiah was going to reign in an earthly kingdom at that time. They only thought about one coming, even though there is evidence in Scripture of two. And they only thought about him as a mighty warrior. They never thought about him as a suffering servant. So they put all that together here, and they expected Elijah. That's why they uh, went to, to, um, to John the Baptist in the book of John and said, Are you Elijah? And he said no, because he knew he wasn't Elijah the Tishbite. He knew he wasn't that guy. He knew he wasn't that coming. And, and we have here, Elijah here, I believe, not everybody believes this way, and that's okay, right? We can step aside here and say there's multiple beliefs here about who this Elijah is. I believe we're talking about the second coming, and I believe that it will be Elijah. Regardless of the fact that Elijah appeared with, Christ, uh, with uh, Moses and Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, and regardless of the fact that uh, Jesus points to John the Baptist and saying he's the Elijah to come. We have two comings in Malachi. We have the coming of Christ and John the Baptist, um, John the Baptist first in chapter 3, 
We have the fire of refinement in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, we have the coming of Elijah. I believe the Elijah from the Old Testament, the one who was taken up in a, in a, in a whirlwind, taken up in a chariot. Um, and we have the coming of Christ for a final time, for the final judgment and the final destruction of all the wicked. And that's why we have here, he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. He'd already struck Israel once with a total destruction in 70 AD. He will come again and he will destroy the whole earth. All the wicked of the earth will be destroyed. There's going to be restoration. There's going to be renewal. There's going to be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous will rise to life eternal and the wicked to eternal condemnation. And those who are called, those who fear the Lord are called to obedience. He says, remember the law. I believe he was speaking this just as much to the remnant as he was to those who refused to repent. To the repent, he says, remember the law of Moses. I gave him my law. I told you what I wanted you to do. And to those who repented, he said, remember my law. I gave you the privilege of being my people, of showing my glory to the world. Keep doing that. And when we're saved today, we don't tell people, okay, you're saved now. You can go do what you want. No, you're saved from the wrongful uh, enslavement to a wrong master, the devil. And you're freed to serve your rightful master, Jesus Christ. You're not freed from obedience. You're freed to obedience. We're called to obey, to glorify God. We're given that privilege. The wicked cannot please God even with the best, most obedient, most if they, if they were able to take all the words of the Bible and reduce them to do this, don't do that, and they were able to do it all in one day without any violations, that would not please God one bit because they were doing it in order to justify themselves. Brothers and sisters, when we obey God because of Jesus Christ with a full knowledge that we're only pleasing because of Jesus Christ, even the smallest act of obedience is pleasing to him. Not because of us, but because of Jesus Christ. The one who brought the new covenant. A regular purpose of the word of God being preached, of the word of God going forth, is that it would provoke repentance. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would repent and have life in him. And so, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I would strongly urge you, take every, every word of the Lord seriously. Every time you read it, every time you hear it preached, every time you hear it sung about, take it seriously. Take God at his word. When he points out sin, repent and obey. You'll give him glory, you'll please him, and you'll show yourself to be a child of God. For those of you who are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, the preaching of the word of God is an opportunity for you to repent. God 
as it were, is calling to you. Repent. Trust in the word of the Lord and obey. Before we read that, did you, you guys need to remember from childhood? Uh, I don't remember who wrote the song. All I remembered was the chorus this morning as I was looking through this, my slides. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's why this morning I said, you know, the, the message that Jay and I or any preacher preaches, the message we preach will reduce at some level to trust in the Word of God and obey Him. It always will. And it'll always lead to happiness in Jesus if you're doing so in faith in Him. I wanted to close with this passage from Titus 2. I was, again, so pleased that I saw it on the slides this morning. The grace of God has appeared. Paul writes to Titus, tells him why the church should have certain behaviors and certain actions that they take, why they should obey. Book of Malachi, to those who believed and to those who rejected, he said, look, because of the grace of God, this is how you need to live. Paul says it this way in Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And Jesus Christ offers salvation to all people. Until that final day, salvation will be offered. And he teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Remember what Malachi said, of the faithful remnant. What God said, he said in verse 17, on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. A people for his very own. It's my prayer that that's each and every one of you. If not today, then soon. That you will be a treasured possession of the Lord because of what Jesus Christ has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, so much for your word. Not only for your word recorded, your word in, in, in book form that we have today, collected and spread out over the whole, whole earth in, in probably close to 2,000 languages by now, your word for all people, preserved, written for us, but also for your word incarnate, your word made flesh, Jesus Christ, who fully and in human form expressed all of your godliness, contained all, uh, all that is you, all of your fullness was expressed, all of your radiance was seen and was expressed in Jesus Christ. God, thank you for your word given. Thank you that Jesus died the death we deserve, offering to take the penalty for anyone who would repent. And he rose again for our justification showing that it was an acceptable sacrifice, a pleasing sacrifice, showing that we could have life in his name. God, I pray for everyone here. Pray that you'll keep us and help us to endure. For those who don't have faith in Jesus, I pray that you would turn their hearts. You'd offer them, that you would grant to them 
uh, faith and repentance and show them your salvation. God, thank you so much for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Stand as us, uh, please, and sing, Sovereign Over All.